Yes, hello everyone, and welcome back to the Number the Brave podcast. I'm Hal Schwartz, and as always, I'm here with my great buddy Flynn McLean. Flynn, how you doing? Doing very well. I'm still enjoying the hell out of Winterland, that's for sure. I, don't I know think, you are. I don't think it was any coincidence, though, that the uh, my fastest mile in about four months was uh, was done while I was listening to Prove It All Night from the broadcast. <laughs> yeah, well, if that Prove It All Night doesn't drive you forward fast, I don't know what will. Uh, very true. I just kept going a little bit too fast. I hope I my feet recover from that one. <laughs> Now, interesting, in today's Backstreets on the news page, uh, Eric Flanagan had an article detailing the backstory to these shows, and I thought it was a really great read. It was. It was very interesting. Uh, talk, they were talking about the promotional efforts that they were that they were putting into that leg of the tour. They were looking to expand Bruce's reach into those markets, and I thought San Francisco was already a strong market for him by 78, but I, I guess not. I was surprised also that San Francisco was considered – really sort of a weaker market for him. In fact, they only planned one show there, and then the second Winterland night was added. So obviously, over time, he has really built a fan base, and it's been 40-some-odd years, of course, <laughs> but the Bay Area is a really strong market for him now. Well, the uh, one of the points that Eric was making in the article was that the uh, the broadcast made a huge dent, uh, a uh, made a huge dent in that effort to bring Bruce to the to the Bay Area. Yeah, one of the other things I enjoyed reading about there was their quest to get AT&T phone lines so that they could get it to additional cities. That's what they had back then. That's what they did. Oh, I know. I just it's funny thinking about it 40 years later. Another right. cool thing to see in that article was that they had the 24 track layout for the broadcast. And it really does show you what a multi-track does. I mean, the drums with three different tracks and each vocal track, of course, separately. That's why we want them to have access to the multi-tracks. And that's why those are the best ones, because John Altshuler can go in and take all of those various tracks and produce something that is pretty damn good. Right. When you have a multi-track, every every instrument is is separated out, as you can as you as you can see on that chart, so that you can totally focus on getting the drum sound just right, and then you can focus on getting just the piano sound and the guitar sound. And if you noticed, it was the accordion Glockenspiel on one channel or on one track, and then you had the Leslie, which was the name of Danny's organ. I just I I learned that today actually from from Mr. Flanagan himself. Oh, that's so, cool. Yeah, I had no idea what a Leslie was. I'm like, what is that? So it's it was the organ that Danny was using at the time. Now, we also learned something this week, which is that there will be no archive release for January. Yeah, it's always disappointing, but, uh, you know, I'm still digging both Winterlands. I think a lot of people are, or at least they should be. And uh, I think we'll give them a pass for January after just after giving us those two shows last month. Now, should we move on to tonight's topic? I believe we should. So to set up what we're going to be doing in the next couple of episodes, tonight we're doing Springsteen Rides On Down into the Tunnel of Love. You can take a guess at what we'll be talking about, which is, yes. uh, go ahead. Kind of obvious from that title. <laughs> Bruce's landmark 1987 album, Tunnel of Love. And then the next episode is going to be dedicated to the tour that followed. And that's going to be entitled, This Is Not a Dark Ride, Springsteen in 1988. Right. These are going to be two very fun episodes because, uh, that was when Hal and I were, that was, we were young when we were so young. We were so young, not in love though. We were not in love. I didn't even, I did not know Hal in 1988, but, uh, that, that was when our, our passions were, uh, were quite high for, for Mr. Springsteen and his music. Not that they aren't today. 
Well, when you're the age we were, everything seems seemed more intense. As we'll talk about in the next episode a little bit, that was the first time I ever traveled to see a rock concert. And I really had a lot of fun on that tour. And it, it does mean a lot to me today, as does the album. I think it's a very important record for both of us. Right. Well, there's a there's an odd saying out there. You never forget your first time. So and the Tunnel of Love was my first tour. So really it does hold a special place in my heart. And as a collector, I must say that even back in 1990, I had every every show from 88 on some kind of recorded media. So my obsession was pretty high even back then. And that's saying something because those shows were pretty damn similar. They were. They were. And we'll and we'll definitely talk about that more next week. And uh, that'll be the show that I was born to do. So I'm looking forward to it. So to set the table, of course, Bruce concluded the Born in the USA tour in late 1985. He had just recently gotten married to Julianne Phillips. He was taking time off in 1986. He did do the Bridge Benefit, which, of course, has been an archive release. And then on November the 10th, he released the live album, a landmark live album, one of the biggest selling live albums of all time. And as we headed into 1987, everyone wondered what he was going to be doing. Well, it wasn't until uh, late July of 87 that we actually did get some kind of an idea of where he was going. Rolling Stone had a uh, had an item in the random notes section where uh, they said that Bruce has been recording in Los Angeles, but not with the E Street Band, but with some other country country music session, man. Guys, uh, try to get the names out of here. J.D. Manis. That's right. Jimmy Woods and Richard Green. Now, yep. for, oh, now of those three, of course, only Jimmy Woods made the album. That is true, and that was a very tantalizing piece of information, and interesting that only Woods is the only person on the record he plays harmonica on spare parts, so we know there was material recorded there, probably different than sounding than what we would normally expect from Bruce based on the session musicians he used, and uh, of course that's never been released, and we don't really have any details on it, so I guess we got to hope for tracks too. That is the hope, but I I actually wouldn't I would anticipate that stuff does sound somewhat similar to what was on Tunnel of Love. I can't imagine it being straight ahead, more country, but certainly country-esque, which I think I can describe Tunnel as being country-esque in some fashion. Well, J.D. Manis played Steel Pedal, so that seems to me like if he was very prominent in that material, it probably would at least in part be different than the stuff on Tunnel because the the stuff on Tunnel isn't really country-ish. You don't think so? I mean, I think it is in part, certainly much more so than Bruce's output with the E Street Band, but I don't think it's a real country record, which the personnel uh, in those sessions could point to that there were actually there was actually material that really was more to the country side of the continuum. Okay. Well, I mean, I mean do you, you don't think? I mean, I, I get what you're saying, but I still think that Tunnel is more country than than you're giving credit for. And I mean, the big evidence I have for that in, in support of my argument is just that that Tougher and All That Heaven Will Allow have been covered and to a certain extent uh, got some success on the country charts by country artists. Oh, I, I agree with you there, I think. And we'll get into the individual tracks. I think Tougher is certainly the most country song he's probably ever released. I mean, it and understandably that it has become a song that has been covered by a wide array of artists, both country and elsewhere. 
So I don't disagree with you there, but I think the album as a whole, uh, look, basically, and Bruce, if you're listening, we need to hear those other tracks that never came out. So, and then that'll settle the argument for sure. Exactly. And yes, we would love to hear that stuff. And you can even just email it to us. That's fine. Yeah. Through our website, nonebutthebravepodcast.com. There you go. Now, it wasn't too long after that Rolling Stone item ran that we actually got confirmation of, of an album. Uh, I believe it was in uh, mid to late August of 87 that CBS announced Bruce's next album, Tunnel of Love. That is true. And I don't remember exactly what point, and I looked, tried to look it up. There is no exact date for the Brilliant Disguise single release that I found, but it followed shortly thereafter. And I think that once Brilliant Disguise was released, it certainly gave an indication that he was heading in a different direction. Yeah, it was definitely an unusual follow-up, at least in terms of what pop and rock stars usually do following the greatest success of their career. Uh, but he definitely, he scaled it back. It wasn't quite the river to Nebraska, but USA to Tunnel of Love was certainly a big drop. Well, I think we should also talk a little about what was going on in his personal life, because of course that's going to become relevant as we talk about the record. He had just gotten married. He was living in New Jersey, and I think in Los Angeles. He was living in both places at the time with Julianne, right? Yes. And obviously, as we later learn, both from this record, I think, and from events that were widely covered in the media that we'll get to in the next episode. So things are going on, and I think it's having an impact on his writing process and on his entire life. And it ultimately winds up being poured out in this record. Yes, uh, he, he was married. He was actually having a, a mature adult relationship for the first time in his life and uh, or, you know, supposedly first time in his life. And he was he and he was writing about it. Got to give him full credit for that. He was given that a hell of a shot. Well, and one of the things that comes up as this is going on is and it's reflected in the writing. There's obviously he's undergoing a lot of self-doubt because that's a recurrent theme throughout the entire record. It is. And one, one thing I, will, I would like to say about this is that at the time, I remember a lot of people trying to say, a lot of people in the media trying to say, oh, no, this album is not reflective of Bruce's relationship or marriage to Julianne Phillips. This is, this is him putting himself in different characters like he did on Darkness or on The River. And it turns out, in retrospect, this was him. This exactly was where he was at. I think you're exactly right. I think this does represent a new type of writing for him in, in many respects. When he introduced The River at the Garden in 2009, the first time he did the album in full, he did mention that Stolen Car helped lead to the writing on Tunnel of Love. And here, I think he's exploring these themes in much greater detail and probably with much more of an eye towards adult relationships, because as you point out, he was now in one. Right. And I would say that in Stolen Car, he was still using the old car as a metaphor yes. to, a, to a great extent, whereas on Tunnel of Love, there was no more car, and he was able to be a lot more, I don't want to say specific, but a lot more concrete about feelings and emotions and the situation. I think you're right about that, and I think whatever was going on in his life is being reflected in this new style that he's undergone here. And I think also there was probably a conscious effort that he wanted to do something vastly different from the way that Born in the USA was developed and recorded. Right. He had taken, he was going to take the approach of recording basically by himself 
in his uh, it was in Thrill in Thrill Hill East at his uh, at his uh, Rumson home, as well as in Los Angeles. That's not that different from what he did in '83, uh, doing those Hollywood Hills garage sessions. Except this time he would play all the instruments, but then he would call in different band members that kind of go in and fill in and make and you know if it's better, it's better. Yeah, and as far as the band is concerned, except for Max, they're really not really represented on this record too much. Uh, Clarence appears on one track with backing vocals. That's When You're Alone. There's no sax at all on the record, You know, which again goes to that point that I was just making about doing something very consciously different than he did on Born in USA. Right, and I believe in the, in the Carlin book, the Peter Ames Carlin book uh, biography of Bruce, that Gary Talent did not talk very affectionately of, of these sessions. He said it was almost, they were playing beat the demo, so that it had to be be better than the demo that Bruce recorded himself, and you kind of get the feeling that the band wasn't totally excited about, about this approach of recording. No, and that's understandable, and in fact, I think this was probably the first time they were experiencing it. As we know, Bruce and E Street Band had generally recorded live prior to this. They certainly recorded live for Born in the USA, they recorded live for The River. Did they record live for Darkness as well? I believe they did. Yeah. So here, after all these years of recording live, now there's this new process where Bruce has basically recorded an entire album himself, and he's bringing in people, as you just said, to try and beat the demo. Yeah, that that certainly does, did not lean itself towards uh, you know, keeping everything copacetic with the band, but we'll talk about that later as well. I think that it's also important to point out that as far as Bruce is concerned, he's taking an artistic step here by, even though Bruce always controls everything on a Springsteen album, we know that by doing it this way, he's taking it to a whole new level of control because you're literally controlling each part individually. He's actually having recorded the parts. If he's having people come in and listen to them and then decide hey, did Gary do it better than I did it? That's a level of control that doesn't exist when they're playing live. He may say, stop the song and say, Gary, I'd like you to do something different. But this is really, I think, a different circumstance than that. Oh, that's an, that's an interesting point. He He's definitely infamous or just famous for being a control freak. And that would definitely be one more uh, one more big sign of that. I think any time that something is being constructed more in post than in a live recording, you're going to get more control over it in that aspect. I, I think it's undeniable. And some would argue that it's it's it could, it could be detrimental, but well, we it wasn't detrimental. Whole... It, I'm sorry. Go ahead. But I don't think you could make that argument here. Yes, it was whatever process he used here worked for him, and it yielded what I think is a classic album. So uh, let's get into the songs. All right, let's do it. Ain't got you. Interestingly, I mean the opening lines here. I got the fortunes of heaven and diamonds and gold. I got all the bonds, baby, that the bank could hold. Now, you could say that the man is not writing from experience, but the first lines on the (laughs) album he puts out after he has become wealthier than he could ever imagine are those lines. So, I mean, to me, is it possible that that's not Bruce in the song? I mean, we know that even after the River Tour that he has said he had a small amount of money in the bank he certainly wasn't 
anywhere near as wealthy as he would be four or five years later. And now he's arrived at a point of enough wealth to fuel many, many generations of his family. <laughs> True. The, the only counter argument I have to that not being Bruce is that I can't imagine Bruce, Bruce Springsteen in 1987 not being able to get any, any girl he really wanted. So, But that was just him. I take it as a song. It's a, it's a rare tongue-in-cheek look at himself. He, he really, you know, he, he's not very self-deprecating. Well, let and, me throw something out there because who we don't know who he's singing to here. And it could be self-deprecating. I completely agree with you 100%. You know, but we also don't know what was going on in his marriage. I don't think we'll ever know. But what if he was singing to Julianne? I guess that's a possibility. She, you know, she wasn't uh, she wasn't a typical, typical woman that, that he dated. So, you know, I mean, maybe... With all his riches and whatever fame and success that he had, maybe he felt even when they were married that he never really had her. I mean, oh. it's it's hard to say. I mean, we don't know. We don't know the answer to that. But to me, it's it's an interesting question. See, I always kind of see this song as being perfectly placed in a, in a rom in a romantic comedy film, where you got some guy trying to impress a girl and he's playing the guitar. And she's walking down a path, and he's he's playing it around her. He's singing the song to her, uh, trying to keep trying to get her to smile, and he smiles at her, and just a very flirty song. I think that's the best way to put it. And you may very well be right. I mean, certainly there's evidence in the song, the line about King Faru. It, it's it definitely could point to what you're saying, and I'm not saying it doesn't. I'm just saying I wonder if there's not a level there that he couldn't get the woman he was with. I think you're reading too much into it, but that's me. I just think this was Bruce having fun, actually being funny on a, on a record, which honestly, I don't think he was at least in recent years up to that point. And uh, he was just having fun being flirty. And it was a great way to open the album. That's fair enough. And we'll talk more about how much his own personal circumstances are reflected as the album moves on. Because when we get to some of the more serious stuff, like brilliant disguise and two faces, I'm going to guess we're going to agree there. I imagine we are. And that will definitely be more, I think, more in line with what Bruce was experiencing at that point. But let's move. But let's move on to tougher than the rest first. Now, as I think, you know, and two of my favorite all time Springsteen songs are on this record. One of them is track number two, tougher than the rest. Incredibly gorgeous song. And who really hasn't felt the emotions that he's expressing here to me, this is, perhaps one of his most universal songs. And I think, as you brought up, it's been covered by a wide array of artists. And I think that's one of the reasons why so many people have covered it. Yeah, it is very universal, as you said. I mean, who doesn't want to, you know, that kind of bravado of being in a bar and seeing, seeing a person of the, that you're attracted to and say, hey, I, hey, I'm tougher than the rest. You, you, should, you, should, come, you should come dance with me. It's just a very touching song and it, it works so well. And I think, you know, the only thing that I can say about this song is, and it was in the Broadway show and they did it to devastating effect. It is interesting how some of this tunnel material, which is written in the shadow of his relationship with Julianne, winds up becoming signature pieces for Bruce and Patty <laughs> for 30 years. That is interesting. Tougher and Brilliant Disguise certainly became the the Patty showcase songs 
uh, at least of the in the reunion era. So that is a that's a good point. Well, in the way he used them in Broadway, it certainly seems that he believes them to be like at the emotional core of their relationship. That's true. That's true. And I would I'm just going to go ahead and try to connect tougher than the rest to uh, to the stuntman, if I can. Go right ahead. Well, you're talking to, and tougher than the rest. He's, you know, I've been around. Maybe you've been around, too. You know, which insinuating that everyone has baggage and he has baggage. And she I mean, who doesn't at that point? And then you go to the stuntman and you're talking about how he and the actress made a uh, they were going to see if their broken pieces fit together. Interesting. I, you know, uh, one of the things also that strikes me about this song is it's just it breaks my heart, really, how little it's been played in recent years. Now, he did obviously make it a focal point of the Broadway performance, but with the band, it really does not get played all that often. And, and that's a shame. I mean, of course, we say that about a lot of songs. And if he played every song we say that about, he the show would have to be about five hours. <laughs> but really, this should uh, tougher than the rest should show up more often than it does. Yeah, well, he he definitely made a shot at it on the reunion tour, at least at the start of the reunion tour. And but it just for whatever reason, it just didn't click for him or it didn't click with the audiences from his perspective. But he did give it a shot in eight and ninety nine. Well, and it does pop up sometimes at the Patty song. He did do it the third night in L.A. in 2016, which was one of the shows I cited last time. I mean, a fabulous show. So uh, fortunately, it has been played a handful of times, but I'd like to see it more often. Uh, I'm with you on that one. And moving on, we go to track number three, which is all that heaven will allow. Flynn, what do you think about this one? Well, I think it's the next step in the uh, in the natural progression of, of a relationship. In the first song, Ain't Got You, you have kind of the, the flirty come on, followed by the more lusty come on of Tougher Than The Rest. And now you have the relationship actually starting, and you have the euphoria and the, hap- and the happiness that you always have at the beginning of a relationship. I totally agree. And the euphoria here is really clear. First of all, what's more euphoric than heaven? And he's even singing rain and storm and dark skies. Well, they don't mean a thing because now he's met this girl that makes him feel different and his life is changing. Now, it's interesting how you tie it to the first two tracks. And as a natural progression, if you want to think that these people are maybe going to go on and be together, this is just the first initial moments of that relationship. Right. I mean, you can kind of can almost see the album as a whole arc of a relationship from beginning from the beginning of it and then the various stages and then back and then when you get to the end that it's all worth it after after some major troubles and it's 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 it shows part of the whole arc the emotional arc of the relationship oh i think that's totally right and one of the things that he really captures here is how excited you are at the start of a new relationship. And I think as we continue down the path of the songs on this record, as you say, in terms of the arc, the excitement level is going to drop somewhat. <laughs> well, which which happens in real life. And it depends on when that, when that first excitement, that first happiness, the euphoria fades away. And what are you left with? That's always, that's the biggest question. Uh, totally. And uh, the last lines of this song, and I want all the time, with all that heaven will allow, of course, that's what you want. You've just found this. It gives you a magical feeling. I mean, we all know it, the tingliness. Who doesn't want that to last forever? But unfortunately, it rarely does last forever. And certainly, even if you stay together, there are ups and downs. And if we think that this is a natural progression from track to track, the next track, Spare Parts, certainly 
they're having a little bit more of an issue. Just a little bit, yeah. It's it's really is the um, I mean it's really is the come down from from the, from all that heaven will allow. It's it's starting with the drum beat and then the slide guitar. It's it's kind of almost like a, a punch in the gut in a way, which is a, which is obviously in, intentional. It's a very intense song to be sure, and needless to say, the circumstances. I mean, how can I put this delicately? I mean. There's some unprotected sex, and unfortunately, a child. Well, I say unfortunately for Bobby, a child results, and he doesn't want any part of the child apparently, and he he takes off. So Janie is now left alone and dealing as a single mom, trying to care for her baby. Well, trying to care for her baby and and looking at the life that she could have had, seeing those party lights, and considering doing something very dark, very, I don't want to say evil, but very desperate. And realizing that f- let's find something new and beautiful in her life now, to, to quote Bruce's intro from the tour. Well, I think one of the interesting things here is he's really exploring, and you point out, I mean, that she considers even drowning her child, which uh, you can't get any darker than that. And the sun shines down and she realizes that that's not what she's going to do or shouldn't do or wants to do we're we're not exactly sure what comes over her in that moment when the sun shines we just know that she doesn't go through with this terrible act when the refrain spare parts and broken hearts keep the world turning around i think it ties very much into some of the discussion we had with western stars because it's a case of a character again she's struggling to with her existence in her daily life you know and she just got to get through it and get up and live the next day and live the next day after that. And fortunately in this song, she makes the right choice and we hope from here, her life gets better. Right. Right. And I would say the main difference between her and the characters in Western stars is that she finds something she can do that would make a major change with it, which is pawning her engagement ring and the wedding dress. So she has some money that will help her get through and not just surviving to the next day. I think that's a perfect lead in for the next track on this record, which is Cautious Man. I got to say, this is really where the self-doubt starts to creep in. And that's probably the, the reason why Bruce has called it one of his most autobiographical songs he's ever written. If it is autobiographical, much like with Western Stars, as we've referred to several times, and, and perhaps some of the songs even off Wrecking Ball, he's really laying himself out here. Yes, he, he really does. And I... I wonder if he was trying to convince himself of some of that stuff at the time. That was it really nothing but road, or was he just trying to convince himself of that? Obviously, we can't get inside his head. I mean, (laughs) we keep trying, though, Hal. We keep trying. We keep trying. Well, and he gives everyone, you know, such a roadmap because, I mean, the the material does reflect some of it. And then also, of course, in this instance, his marital issues with Julianne play out on such a public scale. It's hard to not then sit back and say, hmm, you know, what were the clues there as it, as this was unraveling? And I think probably there are clues on this record. I don't think not. There's no probably there are clues on this record. <laughs> well, see, I would actually argue that Conscious Man is, is one of the more positive songs about, about the relationship. Uh, you know, they met, they fell in love. He laughed at the way everything, everything quickly fell into place. And then when he was restless, he, he, he looked to the road. He wanted to see what was out there. But then he realized it wasn't out there, and it was really all back inside with his, with his lover in bed. Well, and, I, and, and on that regard, I think it's important to point to the fact that he also cites 
Billy was an honest man. He wanted to do what was right. I mean, if this is reflective of him personally, it is very much him thinking, I want to do what's right in this relationship. And I do want to make it work. I think that that's what we would take away from that. Okay. I mean, what do you think? I had, well, I hadn't thought about it that way, to be honest. At the time, I was trying to be little Mr. Junior rock critic, and I, I always would point to this song as being, you know, this is proof of Bruce's growing maturity in life and how, how the road at one point was, you know, an open highway, basically, and now f- an open highway full of possibilities, and now it's just an escape, and he needs, and he wanted to just go back and, you know, and be in this relationship with this person and stay in one place. Well, and, and that certainly would, I think, be growth for any individual, Bruce included, and is, certainly for Bruce's characters, for sure. Well, that is true. But, you know, and as as we've learned more, he that he wasn't quite there yet. Yeah, I can see what you're saying, that maybe he wasn't quite there yet. But I do think it represented an emotional growth in his writing. Well, I want to point one more thing out in Cautious, in cautious Man. Go right ahead. Sorry about that. I just tried to interrupt the flow. While... Bruce may not have been quite there yet in terms of saying goodbye to the road and settling down. He was certainly aspiring to be that, and he he deserves full credit for, for just just for the knowing that's where he wants to go. I totally hear what you're saying there, and sure, let's give him the credit. All right, let's do. Now, walk like a man. What do you think? Love it, love it, love it, love it. Does that make my? Can I be more uh, specific than that? Well, it's such a different type of writing about his father than we had heard previously. I think, again, there's there's a change in his emotional stance here. You know, so much of his writing, especially as we heard it on Darkness about his dad, was, uh, do we want to say angry? I mean, it was yes, certainly you, I darker. Think we can, I think we can say angry on for Adam Raisa Kane and some other stuff. Okay, so we'll go with angry. I don't know. There does seem to have been some kind of emotional reconciliation for him in his feeling towards his father, at least between the time we get from darkness to here. Now, we know, as he recounts in the book, before Evan was born, he had a real reconciliation with his father. He tells a story about his father coming down to see him in his house. But that would be a couple of years past this point. But even here, it seems like certainly there's less anger. Yes. And I, the word that comes to my mind is forgiveness. That Bruce, now that he is, I guess the song is written, obviously, on from the perspective of the groom on his wedding day. Um, so we, if we want to say it's, you know, that it's Bruce writing about himself, which I think, believe we can, as as Bruce was starting this this next step in his life as, of being a husband, he was able to to look back on his dad to see what you know, that he really did try to do do the best he could. And Bruce was able to forgive, basically, and I'm definitely not forget, but definitely forgive a lot of the darker and angrier emotions that took place between them. I think you're right about forgiveness, and I think that's the right way to put it. If you look towards the end of the song, especially the lines, well, I was young and I didn't know what to do when I saw your best step stolen away from you. It seems like at this point in his life, Bruce has recognized that maybe his father wasn't fully a well man when he was younger and that some of the things that he did that made Bruce angry weren't really his fault. And that's a theme that did continue into the book and into Broadway. Right. I that I agree with 100 percent. I to be more specific, you know, Bruce seeing 
the toll that the factory work and other other work took on his father really took away some of his his father's best years had he been able to to do more of what he wanted to do whatever that was and so i i see that as the time maybe not the best step stolen away from you but certainly the time that he he spent working and providing for the family when he really he he had other dreams that that he wanted to to fulfill and to me the end of the song the final lines are as emotionally compelling as anything Bruce has ever written when he says, he declares, I'll do what I can, I'll walk like a man, and I'll keep on walking. And of course, that repeats. And really, that that's really powerful stuff. I think this is an emotional step forward for him, probably personally, certainly in the characters he's presenting on this record. And I, it just, again, I just find it really compelling. Yes, I, I, I love the song as well. Uh, one thing I would like to point out here is that here you have a whole album full of full of love songs or love songs about love, not necessarily love and the tr- love song in the traditional sense, but really in the song about his father, "Walk Like a Man." That's the that's the one where you basically have like the thesis statement of the of the record. I guess I, I like using the phrase thesis statement, but when he asks, "Would would that couple ever look so happy again as as they did on their wedding day?" And that seems to be, that's the question of the album. That is a question, and it's certainly an ominous question. And as we lead into what would become the second side of of the record, Tunnel of Love, those questions start to get answered, and there's some <laughs> darkness there. Yeah, darkness on the edge of town has moved into the bedroom, I think is how, was that Newsweek, how yeah. they phrased it, or... Bruce himself said it in the in, in the interview with Newsweek. Is it? Am I remembering that correctly at all? I know someone said that. I don't remember exactly who, but it. I think it's, it's important that "Walk Like a Man" closed the first side of the album on the vinyl at the time. Now, of course, by this point, CDs had become a major factor. So I don't know as many people were listening on vinyl, but my my suspicion is that Bruce was still sequencing for vinyl. And I would agree with you on that one, hundred percent. He was still thinking in terms of album sides, and especially the the first and last song on on each on each side were important to him. And as we flip the side over to side two, certainly the first song there is one that's important to him. I know it's important to me. I think it's important to you. And we get to "Tunnel of Love," the title track on this record. To me, I mean, truly one of my all time, definitely top ten. It may even be higher. One of my favorite Springsteen songs of all time. This is, to me, I think a song that he really nailed. And it just, the statement it makes about love, especially as I've gotten older. Again, the first time I heard these songs, I was much younger. You know, you hadn't experienced life yet. Now, having experienced life, this is just a track that, to me, is so monumental that I, I, I can barely put it into words, in all honesty. Okay, well, I certainly agree with you that it's, I've, I've, my perspective on this song has changed considerably in the 30 some odd years since, since I first heard it, and it takes on new meanings, and that's what the best, best art does, is that it makes you reflect different upon, upon your own experiences and upon yourself. And this is where the darkness starts creeping into this record. There's a room of shadows that gets so dark, brother, it's easy for two people to lose each other in this tunnel of love. That is, for a man who had just gotten married, pretty damn bleak. 
Yeah, he's not exactly uh, a man walking on cloud nine with with his new bride when you know when he sings those sings those lyrics. So, and it's you know we also need to point out, or I would like to point out anyway, that this is the one of the songs that really is more E Street Band than uh, than many others. That the full band sound certainly added a lot to the to the listening ex- experience i think you're right about the fuller sound of the of this particular song and the utilization of these street band members here we've got roy is on the song and nils of course is on the song he plays the guitar solo and max is on the song i think max does a nice job on this song so uh, this is Again, as I said, I mean, to me, this is a classic Springsteen track. Again, the only thing I can say here is I'd like to hear it more. (laughs) And I'm in the same boat. I'm in the same boat. It's a, as we've said, it was a top 10 track and he's done it at least on the, on the 2016 river tour. He certainly used it the one time it was played as like, as a Patty showcase song and would love to hear more of, of him using that song for, for that purpose. I do have to say before we move on from this, I always think of of specific lines. I always think there are lines in Prove It All Night and lines in Darkness, the song, that to me stand out as like signature moments for Bruce as I relate to them. And here in the last verse, he just distills it down so perfectly. It ought to be easy, ought to be simple enough. Man meets woman and they fall in love, but the house is haunted and the ride gets rough. And you've got to learn to live with what you can't rise above. And really, I mean, has anyone ever distilled relationships <laughs> down into three lines better than that? Uh, I don't know. I don't know. I, but I certainly it's worth noting that two, two amazing lines are in that. One about it ought to be easy, it ought to be simple enough. And then the part about uh, got to learn to live with what you can't rise above. I mean, those are two iconic lines in his, almost in his entire career. And they're in the same verse in the same song. Yeah, that, that's I mean, what I'm saying. I mean, right, like, the guy hit a, he really hit a home run on this one. Let's talk about Two Faces. Now, this is a very interesting track because if we want to say that it's autobiographical, there's some darkness settling in here. And much like we talked about with some of the stuff on Western Stars, with Stones in particular, it seems like this character is having an internal battle that he's acting in ways that he doesn't want to be acting. Yes. He's, this, this character seems to act out and then realize that it's, it's hard to keep that, that second face out. It's hard to keep the second face down. And, you know, you feel, and you feel bad for him for this character. He, you know, two faces have eye and he, but he only really, only one of them is the true, is, is the, is the self he wants to present. Yes. And there's he knows he's damaging himself, I think, perhaps more so than when we talked about on Stones, because, as we said, I mean, if someone is just lying continuously, would they try not to change their behavior so as to drive their lover away here? He's clearly recognizing that his behavior is driving his lover away, potentially. Interesting. See, I'm I'm hearing a, a direct line between this one and. And my mind is drawing a blank. It's the one that sounds like your own worst enemy. Oh, chasing wild horses. Right. That's the one I uh, I see it there in that first verse of, of Wild Horses about something I shouldn't have done or something I shouldn't have said. You know, trying to keep his temper down. And see, that's and that's how I view this song as well. Well, and is it's that, interesting how these themes have recurred throughout his career. I mean, that's one of the most interesting things about Bruce's canon of work is 
that he's been building on themes now going on decades. It's both reflecting him personally and it's reflecting his broader work. And the fact that we can talk about those themes on a record that came out in 2019 and also on a record that came out in 1987, I think is pretty fascinating. It is. It is the the lines that he's been drawing for all these years. I mean, that's what makes him makes him a great artist. There's a depth here to the work, I think, especially on Tunnel of Love, that is I think it's pretty rare for a rock album. I, if we want to call it a rock album, I know it's not traditional rock, at least as Bruce had done it before. But and and I going back to the beginning, I do agree with you in a way that does put it into the country milieu, even if the songs themselves don't necessarily sound like classic country songs. Yeah, I mean, people often talk about the twang of of Bruce's vocals, and I think. There may not be a huge twang here, but there's just enough to make it not seem out of place on a on a modern country music playlist. One wonders what he would how he would view this song today, 30 years later. Does he view it in the same way? Was this written? We'll never know the answer to this, I don't think, because as you pointed out in the book, he didn't really address any of these songs specifically. But did he write this from a place of he was married to Julianne and there was stuff that he was engaging in or doing that he regretted deeply and the second face was really his own? Well, there is an episode in the book that he re- that he recounted where he said he was having dinner with this with with Julianne. They were having a nice dinner. And yet in his mind, he's accusing her of only being with him to advance her career. And that was, you know, whether that was the case or not, he was thinking it. And, and that's that's his second face right there. Oh, that's really interesting. I actually I didn't remember that, but that's a perfect example of it. And in fact, that's pretty ominous to think of what would be going on in someone's head if they were with someone and they really believe that perhaps that person is only there because they're, they're looking to benefit in a career sense. And it's not really about deep love. Right. Right. And, and then also you have to imagine that Bruce had two faces at times or has had two faces at times with his in his uh, in his second marriage. We you know, that would be another way that he would be he could look back on it and say, well, when I was wrote it here, I was thinking this or feeling this. But then X number of years later, it, I had this, some of the same feelings or or whatever. I just, well, you know, the songs, the songs change meaning. You know, yes, I agree 100 percent there. And wouldn't you think that I mean, in any marriage, there's going to be a second face, I would think, at certain points. And I guess the the question the song is asking or is recounting that he wants to control that second face because he knows it's harmful. Right. It's 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 self-sabotage to to him and, and certainly to the relationship. Right. So there's a certain self-awareness there that. You know, as we were talking about on the Western Stars, there didn't seem to be a lot of self-awareness there. So here there is self-awareness. There's a lot of it here. And that leads in perfectly to the next track, which is if you're talking about self-awareness, perhaps this this may actually be the most self-aware track that any <laughs> rock stars ever written. That's a good way of putting it. And, and and it's entitled Brilliant Disguise. It's about the mask that we all wear, right? The floodgates have opened of self-doubt. Yeah. Is is it is it you I don't trust? Because I damn sure don't trust myself. Yeah. And, you know, that's that the, is that's that's the key lyric to this song. And and it is that is why it has become so fascinating 
that over the 30 years, and you talk about how songs change meaning over time, because this song really does stand for the emotional tenderness now, not only to Bruce and Patty themselves and the way it was done on Broadway, but I think also for the audience. There were so many tender moments that we've seen with Bruce and Patty as it relates to the song. I think back to even the 92-93 tour when she made guest appearances and there was one night, I think it was the Meadowlands, the show that's been released as an archive, where he surprised her and he took her and they slow danced. It was such a touching moment. And yet on the record here, there's it's not. No, it's, it's really not about I mean, the guy is he's suspicious and then he's well, he's suspicious of, of, of his partner and then he becomes incredibly doubtful of himself. I mean, he really does run the emotional gamut of certainly of dark emotions, maybe not all emotions, but definitely the darker side. And he says, I want to know if it's you I don't trust because I damn sure don't trust myself. The self-doubt that is there. I mean, it's you you wonder what he was going through at the time. I know we said this also during Western Stars, because if we assume that this is him and I think on this track, there's every reason to believe that it was him. And in fact, even if we look at how the video was recorded, him alone in the room with the camera moving in tight as the song continues onto his face, you know, reading his emotions, you would agree it's him, right? Yeah. This really is one of the greatest songs of his catalog, and he really is laying himself out there in a way. I don't know. Do rock stars normally lay themselves out there like this? Uh, not very often, but they are. But they are praised when they do. And and think about it. This is coming. And this was the song that introduced this record on top of it. Think about it. This is coming after Born in the USA. It's just it, it's just such a change. I always think of it, think of the way he used it as the opening song at the Christic shows a couple years later, where in that case, he wasn't talking to a romantic partner or even a friend. He was he was talking to the audience. You know, that, if uh, yeah, that's a fair point. You know, I don't. Is, is that you or just a brilliant disguise? And when you think about him saying that to to a crowd and, you, and then you put in the whole. I love you, Bruce, but you don't even know me moment from one of those shows. It shows that he was he was pretty, you know, pretty. The song does lay it out. It really opens well, him up. And it was it was it. He's trying to deconstruct these notions from the Born in the USA tour. And as you're moving forward here, he seems to lose sense of himself in a way. And yeah. it's being reflected in the song. Yeah, this is the. This is that song. This is the the self song, whether it's finding yourself or doubting yourself. I think that really just kind of nails narrows it down there. You know, and the interesting thing is we move into One Step Up, which is the next track. In One Step Up, I mean, of course, what's the signature line? You're moving one step up and two steps back. It seems like, you know, from Brilliant Disguise, you're you're trapped in this sort of place. And even though you try to take positive steps forward, you're ultimately always winding up two steps back. And that's usually due to self-sabotage. Yes. Yeah, and, and which is another another theme that we can go back to. Uh, we can we can connect between Tunnel of Love and, and Western Stars. From 1985 on, these are definitely the two most cohesive records, and I do think they share some DNA. Oh, absolutely. I agree with you. I mean, I usually agree with you, Hal, and this is one of those times. Well, thank you. I'm glad we agree on this point. Well, you know, great minds think alike and all that stuff. 
Oh, I don't know if we want to declare ourselves great minds. We'll leave that for the audience to decide. <laughs> all right, all right. I always think of the early of the night. No, never mind. Okay. But for this the is again. This is another song, and this was. I don't think did this song. I have to look it up. I think this song may have only gone top fifteen. It didn't go top ten. Uh, I thought it went top ten, but I could be wrong. We're you gonna know, pull up your wiki or what? Uh, I can do that if you like. Please do. Uh, Please do. Uh, Nope, here it is, and it turns out I actually was accurate on that one. It peaked at number 13 on the Billboard Hot 100. Okay, well, in terms of lyrical content, I believe that uh, there's really not much ambiguity on this one. No, there's absolutely no ambiguity, and as, as I started by introducing it, I mean, anytime you're doing something in life where you're moving one step forward but winding up two steps constantly back, not only is that unambiguous, it's just not a good situation for your life because you're not advancing and whatever hopes you're having, you're not achieving. And I think one step up kind of wraps up a three song suite, if you will, about the perils and the dangers and the darkness of being in a relationship and realizing at this point, you can probably go either way. If you can, you, you can either stay in that, in that, and on that, on that path, or you can decide that it's not good to be alone. And of course, in the next track, when you're alone, that's exactly what he's contemplating. I got to be honest, I've never been a big fan of when you're alone. Um, it's one of the few songs I have never seen off that album perform live. And it's, you know, I get where it's coming from and it fits perfectly on the album, but it's just not one of my faves. I can see where you're coming from there. I mean, the song does feel a little repetitive, especially the chorus. I think in certain ways that's intentional. We know Bruce does that stuff very carefully, but I don't know if it's as compelling as some of the songs that came before. I will say that I did see the live debut of the song, which was at the Count Basie at the famed 1993 rehearsal show. And when he did it with the backup singers, I thought it was really effective. Okay. Now, one thing about the repetitive chorus is that I remember, I forget who wrote it, but it was the one, the Backstreet's review uh, of the album, where each time, as the song progresses, each time he sang the chorus, you had more and more backing vocals in there. And I, th and I think that's, that was, that's a pretty cool effect. Yeah, that is true. And, and again, I should mention, just as an aside, this is, of course, the only track that Clarence appears on, and he's singing in the backup partial backup vocals on this track. Now, I said earlier that this is very much a country-esque album, or at least the, the furthest that Bruce has gone in the country direction. And I actually, I think an argument can be made that this song is the most country. Really? Even more so than Tougher? Um, I guess it would be kind of a tie, but I think the twang is even more evident here, and the, and the acoustic guitar makes it more, to me, more, sound more country, especially as I'm thinking about it right now. That's fair enough. I will say as far as repetition is concerned, obviously there are some songs in the Springsteen canon, one that comes to mind, which is probably among the two or three favorites, that would be Backstreet's, where there is also some repetition. Just a little bit. 25 times saying the same thing in a row. That's a little, rep that's a little repetitive, but, but it works in this song, and I think it works in this song as well. So it seems like as we're talking about it now, perhaps you're getting a little warmer on the song. Well, maybe, maybe I am. I, I, I said it was not one of my favorites, but uh, it works on the album and the repetitiveness works in, in that regard. 
Now, there are certain aspects of the song that I really do like a lot. Uh, the, when he gets to the line, it's just nobody knows, honey, where love goes. But when it goes, it's gone, gone. I think there he is really capturing something. And that really is the heart of the song there. So that you've got this moment in time where you've got a chance to have a relationship or maybe if it's even just a passing fleeting moment. But when that moment passes, it's gone for good. That's a good point. That's a good point. And I, that's and a lot of the album kind of not a lot, but much of the album is about trying to figure out how to make it not disappear. Well, if you think going back to some of the tracks we previously talked about, I mean, in tougher than the rest, he is looking for that moment. I mean, in, in, in tougher, really, if you think about it, I mean, yes, I think there's an aspect that the character would love to be with the woman and maybe they have a lifetime together. But also within the song, he's really just searching for that moment. I mean, I think he'd be happy just to have the one dance, right? Yes, yes. And if he's searching for that moment in tougher, I think he found it in all that heaven will allow. So you, so you have and then here and when you're alone, he they had that moment and then it's. It's fleet. It's gone, and, and I, you know, and, and you can, I can, you can argue that the previous three songs really address the moment right before it's gone, and this is maybe in this song he's trying just to hold, you know, one last grasp at it, at least in the theor theoretical sense. I think that's certainly a very good point, and we talked about the darkness in Two Faces, Brilliant Disguise, and to a certain extent, One Step Up. I mean, this character is, again, facing, as uh, the themes are so recurrent in Bruce's work, I mean, this is 1987, we talked about it, especially in regards to Western Stars, which came out in 2019, but this is a character who is facing the actions that he has taken, and here he winds up alone, and that's the way life goes. Except, you know, in this in the song, When You're Alone, it's the it's his partner who's leaving him. That is true. But he it, is still ultimately alone when she leaves. He is. He is. But I think it's that's different than so many of the other songs that you mentioned, especially on Western Stars, where he's the one who's running off and disappearing. Well, but are we sure that he isn't the cause that she's leaving here? I think that's a very interesting question. I mean, if we look at Brilliant Disguise and what we said about that track, it seems like that could be triggering her leaving. That that is true. I can't argue with there. I can't argue with with you on that one. So, you know, these are unknowns that we would love to know. And there really is no way of knowing. That's why the art works. That's right. And you can look at it at different ways at different times. And with that, it takes us into the final track, which is Valentine's Day. And I'm not sure. Do we want to use the word sweet melancholy? I mean, there's something about this track. It is. You would say it's hopeful, right? I would. I would say it's very hopeful. Yeah. I think it's a little bit different. We've talked about this before with some of the closing tracks on on Springsteen albums. This one is particularly hopeful, I think, as we come to the end. As uh, I think it compares probably most favorably in that regard to My Beautiful Reward as well. That's a good point. I had not I had not seen that parallel, but there but it's there. It's I think both songs have have had the narrator going through some hard times. You're going through self-doubt and all that kind of not so fun stuff. And but at the end of the song, it's they're it's they're looking to get better. They're looking to whether it's a relationship here that he's going to he's going to commit himself to or whether it's the making sure everything's right in my beautiful reward. Yeah, I think here, I mean, in the imagery, as we get 
it further into the song. It, it's interesting because the imagery is very dark. Uh, if you die, if you if you die in your dreams, you really die in your bed. Huddy, last night I dreamed my eyes rolled straight back in my head. Such a weird line. <laughs> yeah, I mean that's like I mean like that's really bleak. But then we get the God's light shining on through, which is very similar to what we talked about in Spare Parts, where she was struck by sunlight and here God's light is shining on through and he wakes up and he, he feels a, to be a little bit of a different man. And, and that's where the hope comes in. And, and when the song ends, so hold me close, honey, say forever mine. Tell me you'll be my lonely Valentine. He has found something there. Now, we don't know exactly what her response is necessarily going to be to that, but he seems to have some several, some sort of resolution, don't you think? I do, and I think it's interesting, talking about the imagery, and that in this song he seems to return to his cars on highways route, or roots, rather. And that he's, I mean, the first, I'm driving a big, lazy car up the highway in the dark. And so you kind of look at the fact that he's rushing home to her. It's interesting, as you're saying that, I'm also wondering if there's a parallel to Wreck on the Highway, where a character's also out on the road at night in the darkness and winds up alone in bed with his girl and holding her tight. But the difference to me is that Wreck on the Highway is more, is more about mortality. And realizing that life obviously couldn't end. And I feel that this one, Valentine's Day, is about starting a new life or continuing a life with that person, recommitting re themselves to her. Oh, I think that's a good point. I, again, I will reference the line here where the eyes are rolling back in the head. That, I think, is also a very powerful recognition of dying. It, you know, and here the character is is born anew. I, I don't know in Wreck on the Highway if there's a similar sort of rebirth. I think he has had this very frightening circumstance and he's taking stock in his life. And as Bruce said on the River Tour in 2016, you're right. The river wa was about time and Wreck on the Highway brought that to a conclusion. Right, right. I think Valentine's Day is, as I said, more of a, a, of a rebirth for, for him. Or as you said, it's more of a rebirth for the, for the narrator. And I think that's an interesting note to end this record on, the, that idea of rebirth. And that was the lasting image that we got from a Bruce Springsteen record, because as we discussed in a previous episode, after this, there was a very lengthy gap in his output, and he did not return with a record until 1992. Yeah, four and a half years. That was a long freaking time. Upon Tunnel's release, I think it's very safe to say that the critical reaction was extremely positive. I think people viewed it as a very special record, even if it, some fans were perhaps thrown by the change after uh, Born in the USA. Right. I think it was very well. It was very well received critically. Commercially, it's, I mean, it was number one, at least for one week. So he continued that streak. And what the comment that, that struck me or that I remember from the time, I think it was it appeared so a variation appeared in both uh, the Backstreet's review and the Rolling Stone review, which is this the this is a collection of songs that fans on the last tour talked during, especially on the stadium run. So, you know, it took for people who just jumped onto the Bruce bandwagon and really just enjoyed the, the rock stuff, this was definitely a, a different record for them to have to, uh, or not for have to, for them to, to listen and appreciate.
And of course, after the album came out in October, everyone was wondering, was Springsteen going to tour with this record? And there was no immediate answer. Now, on October 31st, Bruce and all of the E Street Band, well, all of the band minus Clarence, did a secret show at McLoon's Rum Runner, surprising the audience in masks and breaking into stand on it and a, and a full set of songs that night. Yeah, that was certainly... People were expecting a tour after he did after he did something like that. I, I think I remember reading in ba- again in Backstreets that uh, they had done some rehearsing of that material right after the album was released. I guess it didn't sound like that there was a rehearsal for a tour, but it was certainly just to get the band ready to play those songs, just just for whatever happened. And uh, well, and they and that we should say they did debut material off Tunnel that night. He did Tougher Than the Rest. He did Two Faces. And uh, what was the other track that they did? It was uh, Brilliant Disguise, of course. So they did three songs. And also notable that night, it was the first time that he did Born to Run Acoustic, which, of course, would later become a staple. Yeah, I mean, it was kind of like it was almost a preview of what the set would be, especially when he had it. We also included Light of Day in there. That's true. That is true. Although not a total preview because I don't recall uh, Bad Moon Rising and Fortunate Son and Lucille being played at all on the tunnel tour. No, no, it's yeah, it wasn't a total preview, nor did he do stand on it at any time on the tour either. So but don't uh, spoil our next episode. uh, Yeah, but four songs that would appear on the on the next tour regularly, you know, gave it something. It was somewhat of a preview. Now, we do know that there was discussion of perhaps doing a theater tour, which he likely would have been solo. He certainly wasn't going to do theaters with E Street Band. That never materialized. And as we know, normally a Springsteen tour starts around the time of the record coming out. And in this case, it wasn't until six months later. So obviously he was having some indecision. Yeah, that small theater rumor, it wasn't just just smoke. I mean, there was some fire behind it because, you know, Rolling Stone mentioned it in their, again, their random notes section. And I just... I mean, I'm so glad he didn't do it. I mean, I would have loved to have seen him, you know, what his artistic approach would have been. But to go from playing stadiums to as the biggest rock star on the planet to playing a small theater, just like two and a half years later, that just the thought of getting tickets just makes me anxious right now. Oh, yeah, it would have been total bedlam. It would have been it would have been awful. I got to tell you that. One other event that we should mention from the end of this year on December 13th, 1987, Bruce played a benefit show that Paul Simon put together. It was an all star benefit for homeless children. It was subtitled Big Blue, which was the name of the truck that they were trying to buy that was going to provide services to the children and their families. And Bruce came out and he did Teenager in Love with Dion and an all star cast that included Lou Reed, James Taylor, Billy Joel, and Paul Simon. And then he alone did the solo acoustic Born to Run, which was the second time that was performed. And then he did Glory Days with Billy Joel, Paul Simon, and Paul Schaefer's band. Now, we don't know for sure, but some legend has it that it was the crowd's response that night at the Garden. And I was there with my good buddy, Roger. It was the response that night that sparked him to finally go ahead and say, okay, we're going to tour. Whatever the reason, that could be urban legend, who knows, but whatever the reason, as 1988 dawned, there was still no word of a tour, but shortly thereafter, we would learn that there would be something called the Tunnel of Love Express Tour, and we're going to pick that up in our next episode. And to say I'm excited to talk about the Tunnel of Love Express Tour would be an understatement, so I really can't wait to do it. And we're going to do that in a couple of weeks. 
So, I cannot wait. Oh, yeah, we're going to have fun with that. So let's finish with a bit of business, as we always do. None But the Brave is a presentation of Bull Market Entertainment. Please subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts or your podcast platform of choice. And as we always say, we love the stars. Five stars, please, if you would. Yeah, and they could they could be Western, they could be Eastern, whatever. Just as long as you give us five stars. <laughs> on the web, we're at nonebutthebravepodcast.com, and you can follow us on Twitter at NBTB Podcast. We love engaging with the audience. Yes, please don't hesitate to to reach out to us on social media. So for uh, for Hal Schwartz, I'm Flynn McLean saying thank you again for listening, and we'll see you further on up the road. Thank you so much. We'll be seeing you. Hi, this is comedian and writer, and let's be honest, I do a lot of things. This is Dean Archipotis, the host of Whiskey Business, the podcast not so much about whiskey as it is one with whiskey. Yes, we drink and talk about whiskey, but we do so much more with so many interesting people. For example, we talk to comedians like Greg Warren. You know, I don't want to brag, but let's just say I can walk into a Red Lobster and get whatever. You know, I think the pause right there is probably more important than the word. Amazing athletes like boxing champion Buster Douglas. When a fighter's down and he's looking for his mouthpiece instead of trying to get up. That's when I knew it was over. Yeah, Yeah. right? And, yes, Bigfoot chasers. Do you believe in Bigfoot? And if so, does he really eat beef jerky? (laughs) The Bigfoot thing is people have seen these, and and I've seen a lot of compelling evidence about it. It's Whiskey Business with Dino Chapotis. Join us for what we call a good conversation with a good pour. You really can't ask for much more than that, can you, people? Check us out at whiskeybusinesspod.com, a proud member of the Evergreen Podcast Network.